This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Sam Chandon. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. The Real Estate Hour airs at noon Eastern every Friday. Immediately after our show at 1 p.m. Eastern, stay tuned to Business Radio for Behind the Markets, hosted by Professor Jeremy Siegel and Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Schwartz. As always, you can access our past shows using the SiriusXM On Demand feature. If you have a question during today's discussion, please do give us a call at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can also email your questions to businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Well, discussions of the housing market often address the particulars of the latest mortgage rate survey or construction starts or house price indices. Uh, On this program, and I think in the academic and policy communities, we also take a broader view of housing's place within the city and housing's role in driving social and economic outcomes for American families. I'm delighted to be joined today by Amy Liu, one of the most prominent thinkers in that larger discussion of housing's place in defining the American experience. Amy is Vice President and Director of the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. She co-founded the Metropolitan Policy Program in 1996 and is also the Adeline and Alfred Johnson Chair in Urban and Metropolitan Policy. Amy is a national expert on cities and metropolitan areas, and to all who know her, exceptionally adept at translating research and insights into very real action. Prior to Brookings, Amy was Special Assistant to HUD Secretary Henry Zisneros during the Clinton administration and staffed the Senate Banking Committee's Subcommittee on Housing and Urban Affairs. Most recently, Amy authored Remaking Economic Development, the Markets and Civics of Continuous Growth and Prosperity, in which she argues that city and metropolitan leaders must adopt a broader vision of economic development that can deliver economic growth and prosperity, as well as inclusion for all its residents. Amy, thanks for joining me on the program. Hi, Sam. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much. And Amy, you are head of the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. To kick off today's discussion, tell us a little bit about the program and the research agenda. Sure. Well, Sam, thank you for having me on the program. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. I think uh, many people know um, that Brookings is a uh, 100-year-old institution that really provides independent research and policy work on a whole set of domestic, economic, and global issues. Our program, the Metropolitan Policy Program, is completely dedicated to the future cities. Um, We uh, wake up every day uh, thinking about how we can help local and regional leaders put their cities, no matter their starting point, on a path to economic success. And today we think that economic success needs to be much more high quality and absolutely much more inclusive, um, and particularly at a time of major uh, disruption, both uh, in, especially in the economy. So um, we use uh, a mix of research, our convening of power, our engagement with cities to bring, um, to catalyze some new ideas and spur some real, uh, real innovation. And it's been, I think, really exciting work. 
Now, you mentioned that convening power. For uh, listeners who may not be familiar with the Brookings Institution, you are located in Washington, and you have an extraordinary capacity to bring together leaders at at all levels of government. In your role, are are you bringing together leaders of cities or metropolitan areas and also facilitating that dialogue with uh, officials and policymakers at the federal level? Sure. Um, Washington, uh, Brookings is located in Washington, D.C., um, but what gives me a lot of hope and energy and optimism is the fact that we do most of our work outside of Washington um, <laughs> in cl- uh, close partnership with mayors and elected officials in cities and counties, with business, civic, philanthropic leaders, with universities and the nonprofit sector. Um, it is, you know, there is no one entity that runs the city. It is a network of public, private, nonprofit sectors that run a city. And I have and our scholars have the real pleasure of uh, convening those leaders, uh, giving them the tools, the voice, the narrative, the evidence to do the important work they do in our, in communities. And Brookings in particular um, has worked very closely with about two dozen um, cities and metropolitan areas across the country, and we increasingly do work uh, globally. So when we're thinking about you know, your being involved right from the beginnings in the creation of the Metropolitan Policy Program, have you seen issues, and I want to focus today as you know, it's part of our discussion on housing affordability, uh, on inclusive prosperity, has our conversation about uh, the ingredients for success and growth at the metropolitan level as relates to inclusiveness, has that conversation changed significantly since the mid-1990s? Well, as Sam, as you mentioned, um, I, with Bruce Katz, started this city's program at Brookings probably about 20 years ago. And um, I think the conversation has changed a lot, and yet there are some pieces that absolutely endure. So what's changed? What has changed is that urban policy is now highly energetic. When we started this work, um, uh, urban policy was seen as very marginal to the national conversation. It was thought of mostly as uh, cities were dead, that uh, they were mostly places of poverty and neglect and deficits. And we worked really hard to change that conversation, to look at cities um, more holistically as and as uh, places of assets. And um, we wanted it to also connect to their surrounding communities because cities and their suburbs are now uh, absolutely interconnected. People travel and work and commute and see friends and do business across jurisdictional lines. And so we ex- broaden it to the metropolitan level. And, uh, and um, so now we see enormous um, uh, energy, rebirth, um, and innovation in cities and metropolitan areas, not just on the East Coast, but in the growth parts of the country, like the Sun Belt and the West. And um, so the, it's much more sophisticated now. And, and now it, it, and so there's a lot of growth and opportunity in cities. The challenge is, amidst all the rebirth, is that segregation, racial disparities, poverty and concentrated poverty still exist and, and in fact, have worsened in this period. And uh, so, the f- so for all the urban revitalization, 
um, is that we still haven't cracked the nut on how to connect neighborhoods and low-income people to the broader economic engines. And that's really where I think we're going to go with today's conversation, that focus on you know, inclusivity, affordability issues that are complicating the, the, this question of inclusivity. As a backdrop for that, give us a little bit of a sense of where we are today uh, as relates to housing affordability, uh, in, in particular in highly successful urban areas like New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco. Well, um, there's a, a lot of different ways to look at this. Um, the big issue about housing affordability, uh, no matter uh, which part of the country we're in, is that wages of people have not kept pace with the cost of housing. Um, we have had a national conversation about the fact we've had job recovery, but not necessarily income and wage recovery. And in fact, um, the median household incomes in the country certainly have rebounded in recent years. Uh, but they are still largely below where they are uh, back in 1999. And meanwhile, housing costs continue to rise, and therefore household incomes aren't keeping pace to the cost of living. And that's a real challenge across the country. In high-cost, high-growth markets, this is even exacerbated by the fact that we don't have sufficient of housing of all types. And um, when we, I think one of the things that we need to remind people when we talk about housing affordability um, is that the housing issue itself is very complex. Um, it, it's almost like saying, boy, we need more jobs. <laughs> we need more housing. But the question is, what kind of jobs? Jobs for whom? And where are those jobs located? Um, I would say the same is a set of questions are the ones we need to ask about housing. Um, what kind of housing do we need today? Um, who is the housing for? And are we putting that housing choice or affordable housing in the right parts of our community? And I would say that in each one of those <laughs> buckets, um, there are different policy um, interventions. Um, so let, let me just take each one of those in turn. You know, uh, we need more housing choice. We need different kinds of housing. So when we talk about a, a housing affordability, we not only need housing for um, low-income workers, but we also need more affordable housing for first-time home buyers. Um, and single-family homes continue to, at a very reasonable price point, are hard to create. And on top of that, we just don't have sufficient housing for um, at the low and uh, at low and a low income level. Right. Um, so, please go ahead. So, no, no, no. And then just quickly, in, in terms of for whom, I think we just need to remind people that um, we have a lot of low income people today who work. Um, yet, entry level wage, you know, um, entry level wages don't give them sufficient income to afford a an apartment in the private sector real estate market. And so there is need for a lot more a subsidized or affordable housing, even for low-income workers. And then we have a concentrated poverty issue. So we don't need affordable housing in low-income neighborhoods. We actually need more affordable housing in job-rich areas of our communities. 
So you've described how there are two sides of this issue <clears throat> as relates to affordability. One, there are challenges with what we've seen happen in the labor market with wage growth or, or the lack thereof. And on the other side of this, we've had increasing rents. You know, and my work principally on the uh, rental apartment side, um, and, and this sort of I think comes back to your point about you know are we not only building housing, but are, are we building housing in a way that whether it's location or amenities, you know, it meets the needs of the market. We've built a lot of class A luxury, high rise, urban core um, that uh, in many cases is targeting sort of that idealized millennial that has significant discretionary income. But there's heterogeneity in the demand for housing, lots of other needs out there, and many of them have gone unmet. In your work, are you focused principally on you know, what are the things that we can do on the housing policy side? Or are you also looking at you know, what needs to happen on the labor market side, where it actually might be a little bit tougher to identify you know, implementable policies to get you know, better wage outcomes? Well, Sam, I think you've laid it out really well, which is that the market is not delivering what consumers need. And what consumers want is m- more choice, more dif- different housing types at different price points uh, in all kinds of neighborhoods. <laughs> and so the market is not delivering that. And I think there are lots of um, barriers or incentives that skew uh, the kind of product we're getting. I think the work in our program is beginning to look at what are the factors that can at least try to get on the government side or the subsidized side, assisted housing. How do we m- try to create more opportunities to build those um, in opportunity-rich areas. But I think you're right, Sam. We also very much focused on the labor market side. At the end of the day, um, it's really incumbent for us to try to give, um, increase the incomes of families. You know, there's always talk about um, gentrification, fear that as we rebuild neighborhoods that some uh, uh, existing residents uh, will not be able to stay. Um, there are certainly neighborhood interventions we can do to um, help manage that. But the piece that is often not included is the fact that how do we help, um, Why? Do, how do we inc- create some strategies to help existent, existing residents continue to access jobs, get on um, important career pathways so they earn enough to stay in the neighborhood. And I think a lot of residents want to have the choice to stay, and some do want to choose to leave to go to better neighborhoods. We should give them the income flexibility to make those choices. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sam Chandon, your host, and my guest is Amy Liu, director and co-founder of the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and the Adeline and Alfred Johnson Chair in Urban and Metropolitan Policy. Amy, when if we can frame this even just a little bit further, I think one of the questions that listeners are going to have is, is this an equity issue when we're talking about you know the need for these different types of housing at different price points for different communities. Is there also uh, an efficiency, long-term urban growth issue here? Is it the case that in our conversation about inclusive growth, part of what is driving us is our, our belief or uh, that uh, inclusive growth uh, is the growth that will actually see the city reach its potential, but without inclusivity, you don't ultimately see the city reach that potential? Well, there absolutely is uh, an equity dimension here in the sense that um, there are a lot of structural 
um, land use housing policies that, w- for all the right policies, still segregate low-income people and uh, people of color in neighborhoods that don't will not see wealth creation. And particularly when we talk, we've talked a lot, I think, about rental housing, but I want to continue to talk about home ownership, is we don't, um, even African-American middle class um, families, because of um, the neighborhoods they live in, their homes don't generate as much wealth and equity uh, for them as others. And so we do have real um, equity challenges in our land use housing policies still. But the larger question you were asking me is um, that is whether how does equity play into the larger growth conversation? And, you know, the, the greater the disparity in a region, the more it creates a drag on broader economic prosperity. So when we talk about broader economic development strategies or uh, growth strategies, we have to be very mindful about who is excluded. To what extent are our strategies trying to ensure that we're helping both the people, the workers, the families, and the neighborhoods that are left behind? Because if we continue to neglect them and widen disparities, it's only going to affect all of us. It's going to create both costs uh, for taxpayers, but it's also going to limit our potential to create even more jobs and income in the, in the community. So in a market like New York, where we've seen you know significant uh, increases in the prices for both uh, home ownership and for renting, there's this sense that we've become increasingly segregated uh, in you know, Manhattan and in you know parts of Brooklyn, places that offer good access to transportation to get to those job opportunities. If we were to ask uh, you know an investor or developer in this market, they might say, everything is going fine. All of this looks great. The city's growing. Prices are rising. And th- those two things are not unrelated. Is my retort to them, that doesn't go on indefinitely. Ultimately, the fact that a teacher can't afford to live near the school where he or she teaches or that a fireman or policeman or, or someone who serves the community cannot afford to live in that community, um, ultimately that has a cost. We may not realize it now, but it's something that ultimately will come to bear. Yeah, I mean, I um, there's two ways to look at this. Um, one is there definitely is a business case to be made for why inclusive growth matters uh, in that, um, you know, communities that have you know, at the inner, let's say at the business level, um, the more successful companies today are the ones that have a highly diverse workforce. And this is perhaps one of the things I want to remind our, re- our listeners is the U.S. is going to be a majority-minority nation. We are going to be majority multiracial, multiethnic. That is the future economy. That is our future workforce. And that is where the growth and oppor- those are those um, that those those leaders and future workers are going to be our workers and our entrepreneurs. And so our ability to create future growth is going to be completely incumbent upon our ability to build business, build innovation, create opportunity from a much more diverse platform. And that's our promise. That is actually one of our greatest assets. 
But we, as business leaders or employers um, or economic development leaders, aren't embracing that as an asset to us. And and it is in, and the businesses uh, at the enterprise level who have a strong diverse workforce actually have better growth. The cities that are able to provide increasing social mobility for low-income children tend to see greater income growth overall. The inaction uh, to um, lifting up and providing opportunities for everyone, including uh, workers of color, the inaction of doing so could lead to greater crime, concentrated poverty. And those issues create costs for taxpayers in terms of um, um, managing social, providing social services um, and dealing with the cost of crime and dealing with the loss of um, employment um, uh, in, our, in, our, in our workforce. Well, one of the things that you, you've pointed out for us in your research is that it's important to have affordable housing stock in high-opportunity neighborhoods. Tell us, what do you mean by a high-opportunity neighborhood? Well, I think all of us know what a good neighborhood is. We choose it, right? We want to live, all of us want to live in neighborhoods that are safe, that have good schools, um, that um, ideally give us um, sidewalks or transportation options beyond just driving, um, and close to jobs. A lot of us don't want to commute for long distances. Um, However, neighborhoods of high poverty don't have those amenities. They don't have strong, stable schools. They're not often safe. They, um, jo- uh, there is not market investment. In fact, there's often disinvestment. And our data shows that in the last decade, low-income neighborhoods are increasingly not proximate to where the jobs are. So there are two strategies we can provide. We can continue to invest in neighborhoods um, and bring those assets and those market assets to low-income neighborhoods. Or we can provide opportunities for low-income working families to live in those good neighborhoods. And that requires providing more housing choice in those places. And this is hard, um, but I'm seeing more and more, particularly in suburban areas that are often just uh, single-family homes, those suburban jurisdictions are now seeing the need to provide more multifamily housing. Uh, they are uh, they want tools for how to uh, find new financing tools um, to um, uh, because they've got a lot of immigrants or first-time home uh, uh, families who want to live and work in their jurisdictions. And so they want to retain those families. Um, and one of the things that I know um, your readers might be aware of is that concentrated poverty and poverty is no longer just limited to our cities. Um, in fact, the majority of poor people now live in our suburbs. And uh, the number of high-poverty neighborhoods have actually doubled in suburban areas. And so now the need to create affordable housing in opportunity areas is both an urban and suburban challenge. Um, and what I see is in places like Chicago, 
Baltimore and others, is there now efforts between uh, jurisdictions to try to work together to increase that housing supply? So I guess the question then becomes, how do we get that affordable housing stock? Uh, you're working, mm-hmm. as you described, with you know some of the largest and most prominent cities around the country. In an example of a case like Chicago or Baltimore, how important has that um, desire to work at a metropolitan level as opposed to sort of the individual cities? How important has that metropolitan coordination been? It's been really important in the sense that... Um, one single jurisdiction cannot house all the affordable housing in a region. Um, people, workers want to live throughout the region. The jobs are spread throughout a region. And if you concentrate all those affordable units in one place, we're actually exacerbating the, dis- the spatial disparities in our communities. We're concentrating poverty um, or concentrating um, 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 low incomes and, and uh, low investment by putting all affordable housing in one jurisdiction. Um, and a, a lot of employers and communities in suburb, other um, single-family dominant communities are realizing that they need to offer more choices than just single-family homes. And so um, there's, there is a shared desire across metropolitan areas now to f- learn from one another about how to use our tools. The other thing is that, unfortunately, um, the delivery for affordable housing, let's just say for a moment, housing authorities. Housing authorities help manage low-income housing tax credits uh, with the states and with jurisdictions and with nonprofit housing providers and the, and the private sector developers. But housing authorities don't have um, – um, are sort of spread throughout the metropolitan area. There's now learning from one another how – the capacity, by the way, between each of these uh, housing agencies are very disparate. And what we are seeing in some of these larger metropolitan areas is housing authorities coming together for the first time, um, high-capacity, low-capacity ones, maybe pulling their vouchers together, creating new um, tools where the vouchers become um, fine, uh, more like financing mechanisms to provide permanent uh, project-based um, um, uh, support in multifamily developments. And so they are trying to be very creative in an environment, as you know, Sam, where the resources for building affordable housing is getting less and less. So it does require um, new public-private partnerships, um, new creative mechanisms, and a rapidly changing real estate and public sector environment. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll be continuing our conversation with Amy Liu, Director and Co-Founder of the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. You're listening to Business Radio on Sirius XM. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Sam Chandon. Welcome back to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. 
My guest for the full hour today is Amy Liu. If you're just joining us, Amy is Vice President and Director of the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings, which she co-founded in 1996, and the Adeline and Alfred Johnson Chair in Urban and Metropolitan Policy. Prior to Brookings, Amy was Special Assistant to HUD Secretary Henry Zisneros during the Clinton administration and staffed the Senate Banking Committee's Subcommittee on Housing and Urban Affairs. Most recently, Amy authored Remaking Economic Development, the Markets and Civics of Continuous Growth and Prosperity, in which she argues that city and metropolitan leaders must adopt a broader vision of economic development that can deliver growth and prosperity as well as inclusion for all residents. Now, I should mention that a lot of the research that Amy and her team are doing, you can find on the Brookings Institution website. Just look for the pointers to the Metropolitan Policy Program, and you can see some of the research that they're doing, not only at the federal level, they're based in Washington, D.C., but with you know, some of the most important cities around the country. Amy, thank you again for joining me. I'm glad to be here, Sam. One of the things that you had described is how you know, we need that greater mix of, of housing options, you know, higher density housing near you know, access to transportation and critically important amenities. Do we have to worry about sort of what we would have thought of historically as nimbyism? Are there folks who are going to say, I- I'm in a neighborhood that's, you know, and I've paid you know, mightily to live here. You know, my property or whether it's rented or owned is expensive in part because, you know, I have access to all of these amenities. Um, and I don't want to see, you know, sort of th- this mix uh, that, uh, you know, uh, of housing that, um, you know, might uh, in some cases, you know, drag on my valuation or uh, uh, it, does that become an issue for us? You know, the, the NIMBY forces have always existed, um, particularly in very um, – residential, um, single-family home neighborhoods uh, where they resist um, high-density multifamily housing or multifamily housing of any kind. Um, But I also think consumer preferences are changing. Um, And you see that now in the YIMBY movement, uh, the yes in my backyard. Um, this uh, next generation of leaders, uh, young professionals that every community wants to retain, um, wants to live in neighborhoods that are more diverse. And the younger generation, the young professionals, as you've, um, and we're about to put out a report about the future of millennials, um, they um, are are earning less income than their prior generations. They're less likely to be employed. Um, they are uh, not purchasing homes as high at a, as a higher rate as prior as folks in their age group in prior generations. And so they're, they are demanding something different. I think what's happening here is this issue about the market isn't delivering. Um, the choice. And our government leaders need to rezone and push for um, providing more of those choices. Can you you tell us a little bit more about that? What is that? You you mentioned zoning. What role does zoning play in this? Uh, Zoning absolutely has a very large role to play in the sense that so many of our neighborhoods are um, zoned for only one type, um, uh, whether it's just single-family homes or not. And even lot sizes um, and how how large they're allowed to be. Um, Green spaces are almost another way of saying um, that they're trying to preserve um, uh, large, spacious, uh, single-family developments. Uh, So I think 
Um, there's a way to balance these values in a lot of cities, and we need to ha- continue to have those conversations. So you're working with you know many of the different uh, many different cities around the country. You're seeing what their different experiences are. You describe not only the coastal cities but you know the Sun Belt. Um, are there lessons learned from some cities about how really to get this right? Well, one of the, the things I'm, I'm starting to witness a lot more is um, jurisdictional leaders, um, nonprofit leaders. Um, coming together to try to preserve existing affordable housing. I think in hot markets, what's happening is a a lot of apartment buildings that have been preserved as being affordable, who that have had long-time government subsidies like a Section 8 project-based development, uh, as they as those subsidies expire, developers are really eager to take advantage of the market and the, uh, to convert them into luxury condos. And so what's happening is not only do we need to build more affordability, we need to preserve as much of the ones that we currently have. And what I see now is a, a not an, uh, an emerging pre- best practice or tool that a lot of cities are now doing is trying to anticipate, trying to track all the developments in their communities that are about where the subsidies are about to expire, trying to quickly pull together tools to um, preserve those assets, working with the developers, or trying to find another nonprofit developer to come in and step in and take over those developments. Um, so being more proactive, I think in most, and particularly now with information tools that we have, we can do that. But the hardest is the financial tools. Um, and so... Um, We um, are seeing also more states stepping in, working with some of these jurisdictions to provide more uh, financial layering and capital uh, to preserve these units. And that's exactly something that I see as well. Uh, You know, on the multifamily side, we may have properties that either formally or informally are are targeting, uh, you know, uh, know, uh, 60, 80, 100 percent of area median income um, that they're allowing for a a wider uh, uh, variety of of folks in terms of their occupations to to be able to live in the property in the neighborhood. The, The property becomes available for sale. Invariably, the institutional investor that's going to be able to bid most aggressively for that asset is the one who intends to reposition it, um, you know, amenitize it, turn it into a luxury building. And we see it sort of a fairly radical change in terms of who is living there. What is the role of the jurisdiction of, you know, the, whether it's local or, or state uh, in working with the private sector to you know, preserve some of that housing stock? You know, I... Um... I think this goes back to the the, the values of uh, the private sector overall in an environment where there is an urgency to create more inclusive opportunities in our community, is that whether you're a private sector developer, whether you are an employer, whether you um, are an investor, um, there is a, a responsibility now a set of values about what what is the community and the economy we want to create. And we are now, as a U.S., we are, bec- we are known at, for our incredible disparities and inequality. And that inequality is creating enormous um, social unrest in our polity. 
And so these broader dimensions don't just happen by chance. It's because of decisions that are being made by the private sector, by our local actors in every one of their transactions. And so I think, Sam, I, you're right. We can Local jurisdictions can work with the private sector and on some of these things, but there's a broader conversation we need to have uh, among all of our local leaders and the private sector is what is the community we want to create? What is the economy we want to build? What is the model of American capitalism today mm-hmm. that, that we th- want to exude for the broader global uh, the economy that's looking at the U.S. right now? And if there's a pushback among the younger generation about capitalism as being um, – is not being a positive force, then how do we write that? You've described now, on one hand, an admonition to local leaders, uh, mayors, you know, members of economic development corporations about you know, needing to have this broader conversation about you know, what our objectives and goals are um, and how that should you know, inform our, our priorities around you know, the kinds of housing opportunities that we make available. Um, in as much as you know, we have that audience on the line, what are some of the things that we'd want to communicate to them that, you know what? This is uh, this is something you don't want to do. You know, are there on one hand we've got lessons learned from you know some of the cities that are really sort of nailing this. Uh, are, are there examples of th- of mistakes uh, that uh, that cities or or jurisdictions are making that you know, we could just seek to avoid? Yes. So Sam, I think it's a great question, and one of the things that I try to encourage people who are in the built environment space, whether it is a real estate developer, a community developer, a a neighborhood advocate, uh, people who really care about placemaking, is that are people better off as a result of our development? And what is the measure of our success? And oftentimes when it comes to the built environment, we measure the performance of the building. Did that building give me a return on investment? Um, I would even say this for community developers who are obviously working very closely with the private sector and with CDFIs to bring uh, housing and retail establishments into distressed neighborhoods. But the, but, but, and again, very well intended, but the measure often is the performance of the the project. But what I want to ask people to do is, are people in our communities better off as a result of that development? Um, And because it it is the people (laughs) that we are trying to... Housing is a vehicle to something bigger. It is the fact that ultimately what we all want is to help people earn enough money to make a living and provide for their families. Yeah, and I see that as really key here to the conversation, sort of that shift in the way that we think about this. It's not housing and home ownership, let's say, as a goal or end in itself, part of, you know, we think of housing as part of the American dream or home ownership as part of the American dream. It's that housing thought of as a facilitator of or an input to the production function where ultimately we're looking at, you know, jobs and economic and social opportunity for people. And so, you know, 
thinking about it in those terms, realizing the role that you know, our housing investments and priorities play in outcomes you know, across this much, much broader set uh, of outcomes for American families. Right. And I know how hard this is in reality, because especially when it comes to affordable housing, is how to make the price work. But at the same time, if we penalize families in the process. So for instance, um, you know, uh, let's just take a housing voucher. Um, it's so hard right now for families um, to, when they earn, we penalize families when they earn income. We disincentivize them to keep working, which is really necessary for them to move from a public housing unit or a Section 8 voucher to what we all want is moving to self-sufficiency, being able to move and then purchase and rent in the private sector marketplace. That requires income and wealth accumulation. And it's very hard for a low-income worker to accumulate enough savings to move into that place if we say every time you earn an additional 10 cents an hour, I'm going to take that money away because you have to put 30% of your income towards this unit. And what we need to think about is how do we provide a, plat- a, 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 a supply of housing that allows people to continue to find stable work, um, increase their income levels, so they can probably leave that unit and let another family in. And, um, and that is the cycle of mobility we want. We want people to go from a low income, a, um, a low rent, a, a subs- publicly subsidized unit to eventually home ownership or private housing. And, and so it, the conflict you're describing is something that you know, in, in the multifamily side of the market, is very, very real. This is so tangible what you're describing, because on one side of this, you know, we've got investors and developers in the multifamily sector, you know, for whom you know the, the stars have been you know incredibly well aligned over this expansion, given what's happened with rental demand. You know, rents have been rising rapidly. That's been great for NOI. Uh, that is, um, you know, net operating income. That that's great for property values. But on the other side of that equation you've got an American family that has to pay more rent and who's experiencing now for a protracted period rent growth in excess of their income growth. So that marginal dollar that they might have put towards you know, paying down student debt, that they might have put towards an endowment that ultimately could serve as the down payment for a home to facilitate that mobility, it doesn't happen. You don't have the ability to save because your housing cost, wherever you happen to be, is simply rising too quickly. That's right. And I, this is why when I think about place-based strategies, which require a foundation for affordable housing but also other assets, is I want to ask the broader question, which is does this neighborhood provide a platform for income mobility or, or that, um, that families in this neighborhood – use this neighborhood as an access to opportunity, that they can increase their employment and incomes as a result of living in this neighborhood. That does mean stable housing, but that also means that somewhere in the neighborhood, someone is working on making sure that they have access to job training programs, that there is a transit system that gets them to the jobs no matter where they are, that there is that their children have access to broadband so they can continue to learn in an education system that is increasingly done online. And so that we're providing 
multi two generations of families to move towards self-sufficiency. And a lot of these families have two, even in low-income neighborhoods, both family, if there are two adults in the household, they're both working. So we need to create the conditions in our neighborhoods that rewards work, that rewards, and a lot of these families do want that. But instead, we have other metrics and interests to maximize the value of that rent real estate property, to um, uh, you know, that we're, you know, we need to anchor a, a, a neighborhood corridor with retail establishments and small businesses when I think, boy, do we even have enough income in this neighborhood to support that small business? Right. If you're so just we're... joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate <laughs> Hour. I'm going to just remind everyone on Business Radio. Uh, I'm Sam Chan, your host, and my guest is Amy Liu, director and co-founder of the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings uh, and the Adeline and Alfred Johnson Chair in Urban and Metropolitan Policy. Sorry for interrupting you there. Uh, mm-hmm. Amy, the first time we met was last October. Uh, we were working, uh, uh, so we were uh, participating on a panel together with Governor Martin O'Malley and the Richard Florida, the chief economist of Zillow, and we having a wide-ranging discussion around how it is that cities uh, would engage with the next administration. We were a couple of weeks away from the election. Um, we uh, got a, a sort of an, unex- let's say for us, an unexpected outcome. Um, and uh, the, the question I really then want to ask you, sort of now just a little over a year later, um, how have the challenges that cities face in this regard uh, you know, changed as a result of that, let's say, uh, shift in policy bias in Washington? There's, there's no doubt a fundamental shift uh, that's happening in Washington. And yet that shift is basically a continuation of what's been happening over a long period. Uh, and what I'm talking about, Sam, is the fact that the federal government um, since the 1970s has basically devolved more and more domestic and economic policy down to states and cities um, to the point where the federal government now is primarily focused on defense, it's focused on the social safety net, and it's focused on uh, the I hope, the importance of managing global trade relationships or global diplomacy. And those are things that the federal government should do. But what we've seen is um, because of the crowding out of the entitlement reforms is all the things that we used to think the the federal government would do, invest in R&D, invest in economic development in uh, for Appalachia or uh, other agencies to invest in housing. Those investments have been inc- just decreasing over time. Uh, it, and it's not just about the Trump era. Even the Obama administration, from as much as they wanted to be creative, were working with very, very starved resources. So this – so in some ways, this is not new. There's been a continuing devolution. But what's really stark – in the past year, Sam, is just the loss of the social safety net. Oh. And um, and something that we have always thought that the federal government would provide. And so we're now going to see through the domestic cuts, cuts in affordable housing, cuts in food stamps, no, no renewal to the child um, uh, health insurance program, cuts to food, new child nutrition, likely coming cuts to Medicaid. Um, And what I see then is all those cuts are going to be now 
be borne by state and local governments that are already stretched thin, that have already been trying to find new public-private sector partnerships and philanthropic partnerships to fill the gap. And now I think it's going to be really even starker. And that new reality is going to mandate uh, local leaders to continue to be uh, creative and work, again, with that private sector that we've been talking about to figure out how we do this in a way that doesn't continue to destabilize the social and economic fabric of our communities. You described sort of cities stretched for resources or starved for resources. I think for all of us who care about cities and outcomes in urban areas and what that means for you know growth outcomes nationally, uh, th- these are very worrisome issues. Uh, how do we – and I'm thinking about this in particular because you're in such a unique position to uh, facilitate the dialogue uh, at both the federal and local level. How do we uh, ensure that these issues are you know, uh, clearly part of the, uh, the the, the policy dialogue, the public agenda, that folks understand that these are these are very important issues. Right. So uh, I'm going to go back to something you asked me at the top of the hour, Sam, which is what else has changed in the last 20 years? And I would say the other big dynamic that has changed is much greater capacity now at the local level. And I think in part it's in response to this devolution I just described, um, is we are seeing a shift of responsibility of these domestic social economic issues to the to lower levels of governing. Um, so um, local level actors have been stepping up. So what this means to me, Sam, is today is there's abundant capacity in cities um, to kind of step up. That's where I do see optimism is that uh, for all the distrust in our federal institutions is that America is made up of a a broader set of democratic and civic institutions. That is what makes the American democracy so great. It is truly decentralized. We have so – we have empowered a great group of institutions uh, when different parts of governing fail. And so we now have – enormous uh, new collaborations between philanthropy and government and the private sector and the civic sector with a lot of global institutions, global companies now, whether it's IBM, Smart Cities, and um, and Siemens and others very interested in uh, cities and trying to give, do the right things in collaboration with local leaders. So I think there is a... Um, there has been a reversal of leadership. It truly has become bottom-up, Sam. And so the question now is, I think this is the new norm. And while we need to continue to elevate up the importance of how the federal government needs to do no harm and how the federal government needs still needs to lead with a set of values that represent what the American economy and the American democracy is about, the real implementation is going to happen in our communities. And so I think for our leaders, all the questions you've been asking me before is, you know, how do we continue to provide that the tools and the resources and the ideas to local leadership? Because now for cities, the solution is us. There's no escaping it. And I think that's what 
to me, the work at Brookings and a lot of my colleagues around the country in terms of national institutions, that's what gives us a lot of energy today is, and what motivates us is how do we continue to propel a lot of this bottom-up leadership and continue to push uh, the innovation that we're, be- we're seeing. That's a, that's a very uh, optimistic and forward-looking point to, to, to bring this to closure. And I would encourage you know, local leaders uh, that are listening in on today's program, visit uh, the Metropolitan Policy Program's website at Brookings. Take advantage of some of those resources that they make available as you're thinking about how it is that you capa- build capacity uh, w- within your city and jurisdiction. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's a real pleasure, Sam. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.